The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. All right. Okay. Let's get uh, started. Um, so before I make an introduction, let me just make a few uh, announcements. A uh, few of you came to us asking about uh, the grading uh, for the term. And uh, some feel the problem sets may be on the difficult side. And uh, some of you haven't done all of them. And some of you have done more. So we just want to let you know that uh, the most important thing uh, to us uh, in grading is really you know, you show your effort in terms of learning. And we purposely made the problem sets more difficult than the lecture. So you can, if you want to dig into uh, deeper, so you have the opportunity to learn more. But by no means, uh, we expect you to finish or feel easy in solving all the problem, um, uh, do the, all the problem sets. So I just want to put you at ease that uh, if that's your concern, that's definitely you don't need to worry about it. And uh, we will be um, uh, really just evaluating uh, your effort. And uh, based on what we observed so far, we actually believe every single one of you is doing quite well. So you shouldn't uh, worry about uh, your uh, performance at the class. So continue to uh, do a good job on your uh, uh, class participation and uh, do some of the problem sets. And then will, you'll be in fine shape for your grade. So that, that's all of that. So without any further delay, let me uh, introduce my colleague, Dr. Stephen Blythe. I'll be very brief. And he's, uh, Stephen is um, doing two jobs at the same time. He's um, responsible for the, all the public markets at the Harvard uh, Management, uh, as well as being a professor of practice at Harvard. So with that, I turn to Stephen. Thank you, Jake, and thank you for having me to, to speak this afternoon. Uh, before, I, um, before I begin, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, so I'm speaking actually at a, almost exactly the 20th anniversary of something very important. So um, on the 19th of October, 1993, which I guess might be the birthday of, uh, of some of you, but anyway, almost exactly 20 years ago, uh, Congress voted 264 to 159, I actually remember the, the count of the vote, uh, to do something. So anybody uh, like to guess what they voted to do on the 19th of October 1993 that might be tangentially relevant to uh, finance and quantitative finance? People, anyone here from HMC is not allowed to answer. Anybody, any guesses? Any ideas at all coming to people's heart, minds? Was it Graham Leach Bailey? Nope. No, but good, good, uh, good guess. But actually, that is actually too related to finance. Actually, this is actually um, wasn't actually directly financially related. So that was related to the uh, future. Anybody else think about what does Congress usually do? <laughs> no, no ideas whatsoever.
What do you think Congress did 20 years ago? They voted to do something. Okay, well, what Congress does is usually they cut money to something. So they voted to cut financing to something. Right, what do they cut financing to? Anybody, anybody guess? I know this isn't business school. In business school, it'd be like, right, you failed. No past class participation. You failed. You've got to say something in business school. So I know it's not business school, but anyway, it's, uh, and I don't teach in business school either, but this is actually, these round desks make me think of business school and uh, striding into the middle of the, the room and saying, okay, come on. Fortunately, you don't have names, otherwise I'd pick on you. <laughs> no, no guesses? No guesses whatsoever. This is, I'm, I'm going to take this up the road to Harvard Square and say, when I taught at MIT, no one had any guesses for this question. One guess, actually, the gentleman here. What did they cancel, cancel, uh, what did they cancel their financing for in 1993? So, all right, well, let's say uh, it was the superconducting super collider uh, underneath Texas, just south of Dallas. So um, $2 billion had been spent on the super collider, and the budget had expanded from, I think, $6 billion to $11 billion. So they, by cancelling, they had a $9 billion saving. This was 20 years ago, exa almost exactly. Um, and as a result of that, one result of that was, of course, the academic job market for physicists collapsed overnight. And two of my roommates were theoretical physicists at Harvard. And they basically realized their job prospects in academia had vaporized instantaneously that day. And both of them, within six months, had found jobs with Goldman Sachs in New York. And they catalyzed, they, I mean, they and the cohort I've called the super, superconducting super collider generation. If you ever wondered why people like myself and like Jake, who got PhDs in quantitative subjects around the turn of, around 1992, 1993, all ended up in a financial path. Part of it is due to Congress cancelling the super, superconducting super collider, because this cohort catalyzed this growth in quantitative finance. So actually they created a field, financial engineering, which you are all somewhat interested in by taking this class. Okay, and they also created a career path, quantitative analyst or quant, right, which really did not exist before 1993. Okay, and that growth of mathematical finance, financial engineering, quantitative finance, however you want to look at it, was basically exponential from 1993 up until actually 2008 and the financial crisis, exactly five years ago, funnily enough. And uh, since then, it's been a little bit rockier. So if you're actually interested in this aftermath of the physics funding, what's interesting is the Large Hadron Collider, which you might know it was up and running in Geneva, and they've just found the Higgs boson, a sort of reverse the trend somewhat. So if there's, there used to be a whole cohort of people going into finance instead of physics, now because finance has this somewhat pejorative nature to it, you know, people don't like bankers generally, and uh, they kind of like physicists to find the Higgs boson and get a Nobel Prize, maybe we're getting a reversal. But anyway, we're still in finance. I, I've, um, as, as Jake mentioned, um, well, I didn't mention, I, I, I was originally an academic, so I was actually a mathematics uh, faculty member in London when I got my PhD. I got my PhD from Harvard and in 1993 I was an academic and then all my friends I saw them go to finance so I followed them. Uh, spent a career in New York and then came back to Harvard in 2006 to run a part of the endowment and I've also started teaching. So um, just as a plug, uh, for those of you interested in mathematical finance and applications of mathematical finance, I teach a course at, at Harvard. It's an upper level undergraduate course called Applied Quantitative Finance which, of course, you can cross-register for. Um, and today is also the one-week anniversary of the publication of my book. So um, if you're interested in what my course is about, 
you can just buy my book. It's only 30 bucks. So it's, and I'll sign it, first, first edition, first printing, first impression book, Introduction to Quantitative Finance. Um, and that is, that's, what, that's what the course is quite distilled. And when this book came out, I thought, that's really thin. This is like three years of my work, of my life's work. It's come out. It's, it's very thin, but I like to think it's like whiskey. It's very, it's, it's well, well distilled and highly potent, and you have to sip it and take it, take it bit by bit. Anyway, that is that is the book of my, my class, and um, the the genesis of the class um, was really that when I'd been on Wall Street and I was a colleague of Jake Morgan Stanley uh, in this rapidly growing quantitative finance field, uh, we encountered on the trading desk in the late 1990s and the early 2000s uh, problems from real, the real economy, things that we had to trade. We were things that were coming to us on the trading desk that required um, subtle understanding of the underlying theory. So that we, it's in, in essence, we built theoretical framework to solve the problems that were given to us by the financial markets. So that period, especially around the turn of, uh, turn of the century, um, there's a big growth in derivatives markets, which options, futures, forwards, et cetera, swaps. Um, and we needed to build theoretical tools to tackle them. And that's really what the, the course was uh, evolved out of, to build the appropriate theoretical framework motivated by the problems we encountered. Um, why I enthuse about the subject um, and I really like teaching the subject, is that there is a, an impression that you know, quantitative finance is a very arcane and contrived subject, just a whole bunch of PhDs on Wall Street coming up with crazy ideas and they need complicated mathematics and it's just complicated for the sake of complexity and the theory is just sort of a contrived theory. But in fact, at the heart of Wall Street is that the real economy demands some of these products by supply and demand. They're actual real participants in the financial markets who want to trade derivatives. And therefore, in order to understand them, you need to develop a theory. So it's actually driven by real examples. That's one part. The other part is that the theory that comes out of it, and in particular the, the approach I take here, I think is just very elegant. Okay, so there's some subtlety and elegance and beauty to the underlying theory you need to, um, that comes out of addressing real problems. This course and the way that I, I teach finance um, is very probability-centric. You probably realize from the lectures you've seen already in this class, there are many different approaches, many different methods that are used in finance. Stochastic calculus, partial differential equations, simulation, and so on. Okay, the classical derivation of Black-Scholes is, well, many, but it's a solution of a PDE. Okay, that has appeal to people. In fact, this is why, in some ways, quantitative finance is a broad church, because whether you're a physicist or a probabilist or a chemical engineer, all the, the techniques you learn can be applied. You know, you know stochastic calculus, or you know differential equations, they can be applied. But the path that I take in this class is very much through the probabilistic route, okay, which is my background as a, as a probabilist, as, a, as an academic, or a statistician as an academic. And this is, in particular, I think, a very elegant path to understand finance and the linkage between derivative products, which might seem contrived, and probability distributions, which are sort of natural things for Probabilist. So this is what I'm going to talk about today, is really this link, um, which I call option probability duality, which in, um, in essence, in its simplest form, is just saying 
option prices, they're just probability distributions. Therefore, these complicated derivatives that people talk about, all these options, these financial engineers, these quants, these exotics, we're really just talking about probability distributions. And we can go between them, option prices, probability distributions, and back and forth in a very elegant way. And what I love about this subject in particular is that to get to that point where we see this duality does not need a whole framework and infrastructure of complicated definitions or formulae or option pricing formulae or so on. So that's what I'm going to try and do in this hour or so is introduce this concept of option price probability duality and show how it's sort of a natural, uh, so there's a natural duality that can be seen in a number of different ways. Okay, so we're going to um, need a few, a few definitions that should be familiar uh, to you. We're going to define three assets. Um, we have a call option, which you know about, um, a zero coupon bond, let's call the ZCB. This is the one thing I haven't become Americanized on. I still call this Z. It's a, um, other things I've become. Um, and then a digital option. Okay. All right, so what are they? Well, they're all going to be defined by their payout at maturity. Okay, so we're going to have some maturity, capital T, um, and some underlying asset, S, the stock with some price, ST. Okay, so we know that the call option has payout at T, so that's called payout at T. So T is some fixed time in the future. We can we'll change it in the future with some fixed time. This is simply the max of ST minus K and zero. Okay, that's the call option. Um, you know, you can go through the right to buy, et cetera, et cetera, but it clearly it's just value at maturity is just the max of ST minus K and zero. Um, the zero coupon bond with maturity T is just something that's worth one at time T. So that's just come, uh, pay out one. That's definition. So you can think of these all as definitions. Um, and then the digital option is just the indicator function of ST being greater than K. Okay, so here, um, T is the maturity, K is the strike. Okay, so T, maturity, K is strike. Okay, and these are three, three assets. So this is, in some sense, the payout function. Okay, all derivative products can be defined in terms of a function. Well, not all of them. Many derivative products can be defined just as a function of ST, and here are three functions of ST. Here's the identity one. Okay, and then I'm just going to um, get notation for their price at T less than or equal to T. You can think about little t as current time today, or you can think of it as some future time between now and capital T. Um, and I'm just going to introduce notation. Every different finance book uses different notations, so just uh, um, let's just C for call price with strike K. Uh, at little t with maturity big T. Okay, that just that notation. Uh, the zero coupon bond, the price at little t, let's call that Z. Okay, that's the price at little t. And the digital, we'll just call that D. Okay, so this is what we're gonna we're gonna set this up. Uh, the notation actually you could help you could have a whole lecture on why notation, different notation. K and capital T are actually embedded in the terms of the contract. Little t is in my calendar time. 
So you might sort of think, why don't you put K in capital D somewhere else? Well, when you get actually to modeling derivatives, you like to be moving both maturity and a forward time and calendar time. That's why I just write it like that, but there's no. Okay, so C sub K little t big T is the price at time little t of a call with maturity capital T and strike K. Okay. Right, Black-Scholes and other option pricing formula are all about determining this, right, for T less than T. Okay, because clearly we know that the price at maturity is simply the payout, right? I mean, that's, again, just the definition. Okay, so that's, that's trivial, but we want to find out what the price is at little t. Okay, so that's a whole path of finance. Black-Scholes and other price option pricing methodology is working out this, but we're actually going to go down a, a different route. Okay. Right, so what we're going to do, we are going to construct a uh, portfolio. So we'll consider... That's a portfolio of what? We're going to consist of two calls. Okay, we're going to have lambda calls with strike K. Okay, so just this amount holding of, and everything is going to be with maturity capital T. So lambda calls with strike K and maturity T, and minus lambda calls with strike K plus 1 over lambda. So we just consider that portfolio. It consists of two options. All right, well, it's price at t. Well, that's easy. We just, let's just write it in terms of what is lambda times the price of the call with strike k minus lambda call with strike k plus 1 over lambda. Just by definition, that's its price at t. Okay. Well, let's look at its payout at time capital T graphically. Right. Okay. So we know about call options. Right. The payout function is just the hockey stick shape. Clearly, that's confusing to people from the UK because in in the UK, hockey means field hockey not ice hockey. And of course, hockey stick shape and field hockey looks very different. Anyway, that's, uh, you understand what the payout of a call is. Clearly, this payout function of a call looks like this. Right. Okay. Well, putting this payout of lambda calls at strike k minus lambda calls at strike k plus 1 over lambda, let's assume lambda is positive for the time being, what does it look like? Well, it's 0 below k. Flat above k plus 1 over lambda, it has slope lambda, okay, and has value 1 here. Okay. All right, you sh should be able to see that that's easily. Okay, so that's the, the payout. This is called a call spread, right? just the spread between two calls. Okay, it has this payout function. Okay, so natural thing to do here. It being a mathematics class, let's take limits, just let, let lambda tend to infinity. Okay. So. Okay. Well, then this becomes the partial derivative of the call price with respect to k, or the negative of it. So this tends to minus. Okay. Right, let's just 
Okay, so that's that. And then this, of course, as lambda goes to infinity, this stays at one. So this tends to payout function that looks like that. Okay. Okay, so this is e easy calculus. This is just by inspection. Okay, so this clearly is the payout of the digital. Right, of the strictly a digital call, but that's called the digital digital option. Okay. Um, just as a note, here is just greater than. You might think, okay, it should, does, does it matter if this is greater than or equal to? Well, in practice, you know, the chance of something equaling a, a number exactly, you can is, is zero. I mean, if it's a continuous distribution, well, in theory, so I should say, the chance of something actually nailing the strike actually being equal to k is zero, so it doesn't really matter whether you define this as greater than or greater than or equal to. But in practice, of course, finance is in discrete time because right? you don't quote things to a million decimal places. Right? So certain assets, actually, which are quoted only in eighths or sixteenths or thirty seconds or sixty-fourths, this matters, actually, whether you define it as greater than or greater or equal to. But theoretically, it doesn't make any difference. Okay, so we've got the call spread tending to the digital. Okay, all right, so this tends to, um, so the limit of this call spread, of this price of the call spread is the digital, and so we know that okay, let's see. okay, this is the price at T, this is the payout of capital T, Okay, the price of the digital must equal just the partial derivative with respect to strike of the call price. Okay. All right, so that's just a um, nice little result. Uh, where does this bring in probability? Okay. So this is the next. Um. Okay, so this is where we'll make one um, assumption. Um, and it's actually a very important and fundamental assumption. Um, and it's fundamental because it's called the fundamental theorem of finance or the fundamental theorem of asset prices. Um, so, so I call this FTAP, fundamental theorem of asset pricing. By this theorem, which we're going to assume here, the intuitive answer is correct, meaning that prices today are expected values, is the expectation of the future payout. Okay? So by FTAP, the price at T is the expected payout at time capital P suitably discounted. So there's both something very straightforward here and something very deep. Right? If you were to think about what, how much would you pay for a contract that gives you a dollar if an event happens, in this case the event being stock being greater than K at maturity, 
you would intuitively think that's related to the probability of the event happening. Right? How much would you pay to receive a dollar if a coin comes up heads? You'd pay a half, probably. Okay. Okay, it's very, very intuitive. But the deepness is that this is actually holds under a particular probability distribution. Uh, I'm not going to go, go into that here, but the, by the fundamental theorem, this is, this is true. Okay? So I can write, in the case of the digital, the digital price equals the discounted, and we'll explain why we want to put the zero coupon bond price here. That's the present value of a dollar at time t. That's just a discount factor. It's very trivial, but it's written in terms of an asset price. Times the expected value of the payout. Okay. So Okay, so either you can take this as this makes a lot of sense, the discounted expected payout, or you can say, I don't understand this, I want to find out about the fundamental theorem of asset pricing, which we will prove in my, in my class. But this is sort of intuitively makes sense. The key here okay, is that the expected value actually has to be taken out under the appropriate distribution called the risk-neutral distribution. Okay. But this formula holds. In fact, strictly, I write this here just for what holds is that the price at time little t divided by the zero coupon bond okay, is a martingale for those of you who are into probability theory. Okay, this gets probabilists very excited, of course, because they love martingales. Everyone in probability theory loves martingales. A lot of, lot of theorems about martingales. And you'll see, of course, that this is actually a restatement of this um, assertion. Because Z, capital D, capital T is 1. Right. Okay, so this statement here is, a, is simply a re-expression of this martingale condition. Okay, so I just pause here just from a probability point of view. When I learned probability, it was under David Williams who wrote the book Probabilities and Mar uh, Probability with Martingales, which is a, is a wonderful book. And I thought martingales is a great thing. So I was sort of happy. It took me about seven or eight years of being in finance to realize there are a whole lot of martingales floating around. Because this actual approach... This formalization of uh, asset pricing really only became embraced on the trade floor around the early 2000s, even though the kind of underlying theory was always there, this idea of this, this martingales. Anyway, so this is a, um, um, and this, of course, is simply okay, the expected value of the indicator function is just the probability of the event. Okay. All right, so now I've won by intuition just here's the probability of the payout occurring. I've priced the digital. I've also priced the digital by taking the limit of call spreads. Right. So now I'm just going to equate them. Okay. All right, so by equating these two prices for the digital, I simply get that the second, sorry, the, the derivative of the call price with respect to strike equals the discounted probability of the 
stock being above k, okay, I just reorganize a little bit, take one minus, and so I get the probability that, well, I can clearly reorganize, I'm going to get, um, all right, so if I want to simply get the cumulative distribution function, it's just one minus this, so divide here, take one minus, okay, so I get the, the, the cumulative distribution function for the stock price at t is equal to one plus dc by dk times one over z. All right, just rearranging. So here now is the cumulative distribution function. Clearly, I just need to differentiate again to get the probability density function. All right, so um, now here's where the little notation gets, gets kind of messy, but clearly the probability density function of, so f, okay, for my um, random variable s sub t, right, so the density of, I'll express that as, I always, funny problem is whenever you talk about densities, they always got, want to say f of x, and it's the same with me, as f of x is the density, is simply just the, the next, the second derivative, or take the derivative of this, is the second derivative of the call price with respect to strike evaluated at little x. Okay, so. All right, so what we've done here is start off with simple definition of three assets, price the digital in two different ways, and now we have a rather elegant linkage between call prices, okay, C, and the density uh, of the random variable that is the underlying stock price at capital T. Okay, so we've established one side of the duality, which is given the set of call prices for all k, okay, I can then uniquely determine the density of, of the underlying asset. Okay, so that might think, okay, this is, um, this is kind of nice. How does this actually work in practice? Um, do we actually think in terms of probability trading, right? We just said that call options are equivalent to probability density functions. Well, actually, there's a very neat way of accessing this density function through another portfolio of options. Okay, so this is actually where we get... To me, it's of practical relevance of some of this theory. So let me just um, show you that. Okay, so we're going to consider another portfolio. Okay, so here we consider portfolio as follows. Okay, it's actually going to be the difference between two call spreads. So lambda calls with strike k minus 1 over lambda, okay, uh, minus 2 lambda calls with strike k, okay, and lambda calls with strike k plus 1 over lambda, again, lambda positive. Okay, all right, why are we doing this? Let's just stop for a bit of intuition here. We've seen that the call spread is obviously the discrete approximation to the first derivative, 
of call price with respect to strike. So clearly, if I want to approximate the second derivative, I'm going to take the difference between two call spreads appropriately scaled. Okay, you, you know I'm going to have to have a do. There's going to have to be another lambda coming in here uh, at some point. This is just a difference between two call spreads. So that's the difference between two approximations of the first derivative. So I'm going to have to scale by lambda in order to approximate the second derivative. Okay, so this is actually called a call butterfly. And this is a beautiful thing for two reasons. One is they actually trade a lot, surprisingly. This is not a contrived thing that I just made up. A, it trades a lot, so you can actually trade this thing. And the second is, as you can kind of imagine, the right scaling of this call butterfly is going to approximate this second derivative, and that's approximating the density function. So this is a traded object kind of approximate the, the density function. Yeah, you have a question. But in real world, you cannot really, the strike distance cannot really go into like infinitely small. So they have some distance away, how can you approximate that? Yeah, so that's a good point. We're not going to be, yeah. So the question is how, in practice, we can't go infinitely small, which is true. But in, we can go pretty small. So in interest rates, we might be able to trade a you know, 150, 160, 170, call butterfly or equivalent, 10 basis points wide. That's a, re I mean, it's a reasonable approximation to the probability of being in that interval. Okay, so, so these are all, I mean, you make a good point that, I mean, in fact, all the finance is discrete in my view. So continuous time finance is done in continuous time because the theory is much more elegant. But in practice, it's sort of discrete in time and space. Right? Right, you can only trade finitely often a, a day and, and, and so on. Okay, um, we'll go into the, the detail, but you can see the price. Let me just write down the first. The price of this, right, I could just express as the difference between two call spreads. So it's lambda times the call spread from 1 minus lambda to um, the k. So k1 minus lambda to, to k minus the call spread from k to k plus 1 over lambda. OK, so that's the difference between two call spreads. Um, we'll call this, this is the butterfly. We're just going to use temporary notation, call that B, B for butterfly. Um, so the price B, and then you get confused, it's B centered at k with width lambda. No one ever uses a notation outside this one section of my class, so that's, uh, that's why. But it's just handy for this. So that is the butterfly price is equal to the difference in these two call spreads. What I want to do is I want to take limits of this suitably scaled to get the second derivative. And the, if you uh, do, you just let, you need to take lambda times bk of lambda tt is indeed approximately, if I take limits, is, is exactly the second derivative. of the core price. Okay, so right, here's, here are, here's how I'm accessing the second derivative through a portfolio of traded options. All right, and so the price of this butterfly, B, if I just reorganize and substitute, okay, so um, I get BK 
for a small lambda, sorry, for a large lambda, i.e. a small interval, okay, is approximately 1 over lambda times the density function. Okay. Okay, actually evaluated at k. All right. So I have obtained this density function um, by this traded portfolio. And to your, to your point about we haven't, we're, not, we're not getting infinitely small, that's absolutely right. But if you think about what the density, you know, when you learn about density functions for the, for the first time, you say the density function at x times a small interval is the probability of being in that small interval. All right, so you know, when we think about the density function f of x, if we have a small interval of width delta x, okay, then clearly the probability of being in this interval is approximately f of x delta x. Right. Can't limit that is true. So what we're showing here if you actually think about what interval we're looking at, we're actually looking at in this core butterfly, if you actually to draw it out, this core butterfly, this is, looks like that around K. Okay. It actually is a, so it's a little triangle. It's not actually a rectangle, but it's a little triangle of width 2 over lambda. <coughs> okay, so it is actually, this is the area right, of, the, of this triangle. Right? It's 2 over lambda times a half times f of x, and that's actually this, right? So this, is, this, is, this has width 2 over lambda. Okay, so in fact, we've got here exactly an approximation. Well, exactly, exactly approximation, that doesn't sound right. But is entirely analogous to the approximation of the probability of being in a small interval. Here is the, the probability of being in this, this interval here, okay? Just the area under that is exactly um, 1 over lambda f of x. Okay, so here is actually something that people do do, is they say, okay, I will look at the price of this butterfly, okay, which gives me the probability of this underlying random variable ending up around k. And I'll make a judgment whether I agree with that probability or not. And if I think that probability is higher than this price implies, then I'll do a trade. I'll buy it. I'll buy that butterfly. Right. So there is actually a, an active market in butterflies. And so I like to think an active trading in probabilities, right? probabilities of the underlying variable being um, at k, at maturity. So, um, okay, so that's the first, the first linkage here. Both the, the density is the second derivative, and the second derivative is essentially a portfolio of traded options. And none of this is dependent on the actual price of the call option, in the sense that this holds regardless. Clearly, this is a function of the price of the call option, but I don't need any model for the option price to hold in order for the, these relationships to hold. Right, so this is model-independent relationships, clearly. Right. If you were to put the Black-Scholes formula into C, okay, Black-Scholes formula of the call price, and take the second derivative with respect to K, which would be a mess, you'll end up with a log-normal distribution. Because right? that's what actually the Black-Scholes formula is, is expected value of the payout under a log-normal distribution. 
and that will hold. Okay, so this will hold for. Okay. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, but the right hand side does not. What's, what's the role of that? Yeah, so it's a really good point, and I've been loose in my notation. So here, what is it? It's actually the conditional distribution of S capital T given S little t. So this is the conditional distribution given that we're currently at time little t with price S little t oh, for the distribution at time, time capital T. So that's where, it, that's where it comes in. It's absolutely right. So in fact, a lot of um, this expected value Right, strictly should be conditional on st. Okay, this probability is a probability conditional on st. Absolutely. Okay, and in fact, this martingale condition is the martingales with respect to s t. Okay, well, we may. Okay, so that's where the little t comes comes in. Here, yes. Sorry. Yeah, there's one over z. That's right. It's just a constant here. This is this number, especially, especially because interest rates are so low in the U.S. So this number is so close to one that you always forget about that. I mean, not when we're trading, but when you sort of oh well, that's just, just a. You know, just think about which one is. Um, this is a quantity that's in the future, right? Because it's call prices. Okay, you anyway, know, so that's how we're going to go. Okay, so. All right, so that's, that's the, first, the first bit. Um, so um, when, I, when I was uh, an undergraduate, actually, learning probability, one thing I learned about probability was from my probability lecturer who said, the attention span of students is no more than about 40 minutes. So there's no point lecturing continuously for 40 minutes because people will start, you know, they'll just start switching off after 40 minutes. So rather than wait, just have a break and waste the time, the lecturer said, I'm just going to give you some random information in the break, and then we'll go back to probability. So I learned that from 25 years ago. I can't remember, you know, I actually remember the material. I can't remember any of the random material. So that's what I do in my lectures is I break them up and, and talk about something, something random. So I thought I'd do that here as well with, with some not completely random. So this is somewhat applicable, this being a math class. So, um, so uh, how many of you are math concentrators or applied math concentrators? One, two, okay, a lot. Okay. Math concentrators. Okay, especially for the applied math concentrators. Um, going, going straight to the conclusion, your entire syllabus was generated at Cambridge University. That's the conclusion. So anyway, here's the, uh, here's the story. So um, back in the 19th century, the, um, the Cambridge mathematics degree, the undergraduate mathematics degree, uh, was the most um, prestigious degree in the world. In fact, it was actually the, the, first, it was the first undergraduate degree with a written examination. It was Cambridge Mathematics, so they have a lot to, you know, a lot to be responsible for. Um, and each year, people took the exam, and they were ranked, and that ranking was published in the Times of London, so in the national newspaper. Um, and the people who got first-class degrees, so summa degrees in Cambridge Mathematics, were called Wranglers, and still are called Wranglers, actually. And the reason they're called Wranglers was from way back in the 17th century where before they had exams, or the 18th century I should say, before they had exams, instead of writing down an exam, you'd have to argue or dispute or wrangle with your professor to get to pass the, the class. So that, that's where wrangle comes from. So these, these um, uh, people who got the first class degree called wranglers, and they are ranked. And basically the, the senior wrangler was um, a very famous person in the UK in the 19th century. And a lot of them turned out to be 
quite successful. So here are here are, are a few few wranglers. I just uh, got this one. I can't reach that, but there can I go over so. So some of them you might you might recognise, and then I just wanted to tell you a quick story about the uh, one of them. Okay, so um, let's start. So 1841, senior wrangler was uh, George Stokes. So basically, fluid dynamics, the whole of fluid dynamics. That's uh, George Stokes. Um, 1854, uh, second wrangler. This is this is who was the first wrangler? The second wrangler was James Maxwell. So electrodynamics, Maxwell equations. He was the second. I mean, I can't I can't quite work out. Who was, who was the first? Um, 1880, the second wrangler was J.J. Uh, Thompson. So electrons, atomic physics, that comes out of, uh, he was only second. Um, 1865, senior wrangler, Lord Raleigh. So he was the, uh, you know, the sky is blue. Um, he was first. Okay, so they're, pretty, they're a pretty, pretty good bunch. Um, so the best, the best, the story, the best of 1845 are going back. Uh, the, the second wrangler was Lord Kelvin. So absolute zero, amongst other things, of course, but yeah, absolute zero. He was second wrangler. And the great story about him, he was, he was the most talented mathematician of, his, of the decade. And he was such a lock for a senior wrangler that, and I actually read the biography, so this is a sort of true statement, that he sent his servant to the Senate House where these things were being read out and with a request, tell me who is second wrangler. And the servant came back and said, you, sir. And because uh, he, was, he, was, he was such a lock to be uh, first wrangler. And in fact, what happened was the question on the mathematical exam was a theorem that he had proved two years before in the Cambridge Mathematical, mathematical Journal. So it was his theorem was set on the exam because he had not memorized it. So he had to reprove it, whereas the person who became senior wrangler, had memorized the proof and was able to regenerate it. And in those days, there was a lot of cramming to be done in these exams. So the guy who, um, Stephen Parkinson, was senior wrangler. He went on to be FRS and eminent, but so he wasn't. Uh, so anyway, so these are, so here you go. Here's the applied math syllabus. Um, here's a couple of other ones which I really like. So 1904, John Maynard Keynes was a 12th wrangler. Now, I can tell this story either way, depending on whether I'm in an audience of economists or audience of mathematicians. It, since I'm in an audience of mathematicians, I like to say, look, the greatest economist who was so poor at mathematics, he only managed to be 12th wrangler. There are 11th better mathematicians in the UK in that year. So he was obviously not, not, not that great. If I was talking to economists, I'd say, this guy was so brilliant that his main field was economics. And yet, as part time, he was able to be the 12th best mathematician in the UK. So um, anyway. All right, so the last one I wanted to talk about, 1879. All right, here's a, here's, a, um, here's a quiz. This one you have to have some answers for. Okay, so 1980-something. Um, I can't remember what it is. Okay, so here's one, here's two, here's three. Right? I'm going to give you one and two. You've got to fill in three. Right? You're probably not going to be able to get this one yet. But anyway, so this is uh, uh, Andrew Allen. Senior wrangler, uh, George Walker, second wrangler, and number three. Oh, the question. Okay, so that's a, that's a question. Uh, 1980, uh, uh, Hakim Olajuwon, 
Sam Bowie, question mark. Okay, who's question mark? Do we know which sport these people are play? Yes, right. There you go. That's Michael Jordan. Exactly. I think you know this is this is a question could go on forever in the UK because they does. So Michael Jordan famously was only picked third in the NBA draft in 1984. Was that uh, four or five, something like that? Yeah. So now Hakeem Olajuwon was actually pretty good, but Sambo is a total bust. So, but he was third. So in 1879, in the Cambridge Mathematics Tripos, these two people you've never heard of were first and second, and the person who came third. You've probably heard of him. This is more of a statistics thing. Um, people know about correlation? What's the correlation? Who's the correlation coefficient named after? Pearson. Very good. Carl, Carl Pearson. So, so Carl Pearson was the third wrangler in 1879 and the founder of statistics. He founded the first ever statistics department and um, obviously invented correlation with Gordon, Gordon Pearson. So anyway, he's only the third wrangler. And Unfortunately, these people have very common names, so I have no idea what they went on to do. <laughs> right? Google these people is not, not, not very effective. Anyway, so that's the, uh, that's the story of uh, Cambridge, Cambridge mathematics. Lots of, uh, lots of good, good stuff. All right, so um, in the last half hour, I just want to go the other way. Um, from, that's my page three, okay. So the other way we went from option prices to probability, let's go from probability to option price. We sort of already have, actually. This is what the fundamental theorem does. If we're thinking, if we, let's take on trust that the fundamental theorem holds, namely option prices today are the discounted <coughs> expected payout at maturity. Okay, let's take that on, on trust. Then we're going from probability distribution to option price in the following way. So let's actually state the, the fundamental theorem, FTAP. Okay, so, um, so I'm going to do a general derivative D. It's D digital D derivative. It's uh, so a derivative with payout. at t. So this could be the digital payout, it could be the call option payout, it could be one. Um, and price right. Okay, so often we, we actually think about the payout function as just a, s a simple function of the, s the stock price. Um, but this notation is useful when we think about the prices being martingales. Okay, then what is FTAP? Um, D, the ratio of the price to the zero coupon bond is equal to, is a martingale. In other words, is expected value under the special distribution, risk neutral distribution, of the payout at maturity. And to your point, it's conditional ST. So this is the, the proper statement. So this is the fundamental theorem of asset prices. In words, it's saying this ratio is a martingale with respect to the stock price under the risk-neutral distribution. Okay. Okay. That's the statement of the fundamental theorem. This is actually n rather neat to prove in the binomial tree 
two-state two world is very, very difficult to prove in continuous time. This is uh, Harrison and Krebs in 1979. It's a proof that you know, however many times you look at it, you're only probably going to get through the two or three pages before thinking, okay, that's hard, but it's, it's done. Sorry. Okay, so this is, um, you can imagine continuous time, infinite amount of trading, infinite states of the world. It's very uh, hard. Okay, so now this, of course, is one. Okay. Um, and this can come up. This is, these are known at time little t. So if I'm thinking at, if I'm at current time little t, therefore the derivative price is what we had before. The expected payout okay so this is rather nice nice expression and now we can actually just write down what this is this is the expected value of a function of a random variable okay so this is just the integral of g of x f of x dx where this is the density of the random variable at time capital D conditional one being at ST, so this conditional density. Okay, so this is a restatement of um, the fundamental theorem. So this is essentially the fundamental theorem, and this is a intuition made good, or intuition made real, expected payouts. Okay. And this is um, sometimes called LOTUS, the law of the unconscious statistician. It's just that the expected value of g of x is integral g of x f of x. That's not immediate from the definition of expected value. You should really work out the density of g of x, right? and then integral of x, the density of g of x dx. But it turns out to be this. Okay, so that's a really nice, nice result. OK, so here is now our way of going from density to price. If I put in the call option payout for g, and I have the density, I can then derive the price C. Okay. So if, if you like, the way I go from density to or probability distribution to option price is exactly the fundamental theorem, or the, the route I take is the fundamental theorem. Okay, so FTAP, fundamental theorem of asset pricing, means I can go from the probability density to the price of a derivative for any derivative. Okay. All right. Okay. So now we can go either way: density to derivative or call price to density. You might say, "Well, hang on a sec. We've only gone from we need the call prices to get the density." Well, of course, you know we can go via an intermediate step. Right, so to get from the call price to these uh, an arbitrary derivative price, I just go via the density. Right, so in particular, and this is restating knowledge of all the call prices. Okay, for all k. Okay, determines this derivative payout. For any g. Okay. So if I know all calls, I know the density, and then if I know the density, I know an arbitrary derivative price. Okay, it's obvious as we state it here, but what this is saying is the call options often introduces this why are they important? Are the spanning set right, of all derivative prices. So calls span 
call prices span span all all derivative prices, and there are a particular type of derivative, the ones that are determined um, exactly by their payout at maturity. Right? One can imagine other things that are a function of the path or whatever, but this is a particular derivative price. European derivative prices are determined by calls. Okay? So that's kind of nice, sort of obvious, but well, it's elegant. There's a two ways, there are two other ways of, of looking at this, though. Right? If I think about my function g, Right, so think about, consider um, function g. Okay, so that the, the, the determines my um, derivative. So it's, it determines, defines the derivative by its payout at maturity. Let's just graph it. Okay. Okay, so it might look. Let's, so let's assume first it's piecewise linear. Right, so it looks like. Right, suppose this is this is G. Okay. Well, you can kind of see I can replicate this portfolio or this option by a portfolio of calls. In fact, a linear combination of calls. Right? I have no calls, but if this is say K1, this is K2, K3, K4. K5, etc. Okay, you can see what the portfolio of calls will be in order to replicate this payout at maturity. Right, it'll be a certain amount of calls with strike K1 so that the slope is right, minus a certain amount of K2 to get this slope, plus a certain amount of K3, minus K4, minus K5, plus K6, etc. So in this case, so for piecewise linear. Replicating portfolio of calls is obvious. Okay. All right. So if I can replicate the payout exactly at maturity, the price at time little t of this derivative must be the price at little t of the replicating portfolio. That's actually a I do that early on in my class, and of the 100 people, everyone's like, okay, that's, that makes sense. And someone says, does that always have to be the case? And it's actually a really, really good question. Now, here I was about to just hand wave over it. Is it the case that if I have one derivative contract with this payout at maturity, okay, and I have a linear combination of calls with the identical payout at maturity, capital T? Must these two portfolios have the same value at little t? Well, one would think so, because it's right, they're both the same at maturity, so they must both be the same thing. They're just constructed differently. And the assumption of no arbitrage, which is sort of underpins everything in some sense, what, what we're doing, would allow you to say, yes, indeed, that is true. Right? And in fact, it's actually the fundamental of Finance, right? If, if two things are worth a dollar in a year's time, they've got to be worth the same today, right? That's what we're saying. If, if you can match the portfolio at T, that is actually the definition of, it follows immediately from no arbitrage. What has been interesting in finance, especially since 2008, is that that 
no arbitra this assumption has broken down. In other words, I've I can hold a portfolio of things when aggregated have exactly this payout against an option with exactly this payout and be paid for that. Okay. And this is actually really, it's a, very, it's a very fascinating thing to think about the, actually dy the dynamics of financial markets when arbitrage can break down. What is the main theme here is that when capital T is a long way in the future, 10 years, 20 years, there's nothing to stop the price of the option and the replicating portfolio going arbitrarily wide other than people believing that it has to be equal. The only way that you can guarantee the two things to be equal is by holding it until capital T for 10 years, for 20 years. In the meantime, those prices can move, empirically they've been shown to move away from each other. So it's actually a sort of a deep economic question here. It's like if, if there is the presence of arbitrage in the markets, then the arbitrage can be arbitrarily big. Right? I mean, because you're saying there aren't enough, there's not enough capital or there's not enough risk capital for people to come in and say, okay, these two things have to be worth the same in 10 years time. Therefore, I'm prepared to buy one a dollar cheaper than the other. It's actually a, a question really of relevance to the Harvard Endowment. We're a long-term investor. You say, why doesn't the Harvard Endowment, if these two things are a dollar apart, buy the thing that's a dollar cheaper and just hold them for 10 years and make the dollar? Well, we'd like to, but if, if we think that they're going to be a dollar apart and they're going to go to $10 apart, we don't want to buy them at a dollar apart. We want to buy them at $10 apart. I mean, you know, yes, we're a long-term investor, but we care about our annual returns or five-year returns. Suppose this is a 20-year trade. So this is very prevalent when these things are 20 years out. Anyway, it's a whole, this is, um, it's a little bit, it's a foundational issue. It's a thing where it could shake the foundational underpinnings of quantitative finance if you don't allow this replicating portfolio to have the same price as the actual option. But mathematically, you can see that you can replicate it, certainly at capital T, and therefore the price at time, little t, is just the linear combination of core prices. Okay, so let's assume that. And then obviously, continuous function can be arbitrarily well approximated by piecewise linear function. Therefore, any function um, at time, um, any function with this, of this form, uh, a derivative with a pair to that form can be uh, replicated by a portfolio of call options. So we can sort of hand wave to kind of say this must be, this must be true, that calls are a spanning set. Okay. There's another way to look at it, which is I just like from uh, calculus, where we can actually make explicit what this spanning what this portfolio of calls looks like in the arbitrary case. Okay, so let me just uh, do that. Um, so you can sort of see, okay, there must be a linear combination uh, by this for a piecewise linear. Therefore, in the limit, any continuous function must be able to be replicated by calls. How many of each? Well, it's actually a very, very simple, um, very, very simple result. Is as follows, and um, well, let's just write down an exact Taylor series, okay, to the second order. So this is um, so for any function you know, with second derivative, we well, let's just write down the Taylor series. Okay, the first two terms, 
And let's put the second term. We can just do an exact, an exact second order term. So 0 to infinity x minus c plus g double prime of c dc. c is my uh, dummy variable. Um, actually, I've gone, to, I've gone to plus notation. Here's the max of this and 0. Okay, so, so. Okay, that's, uh, that's an exact Taylor series, true for any. It's not an approximation, that's exact. You just integrate the right-hand side by parts if you want to verify it. Maybe it's obvious to you, but you know, I'm so used to just doing non-exact Taylor series. Anyway, so this is the second order. So this holds for any, any g exactly. Um, and now we're just going to make one little change, which sort of might make obvious what we're trying to do. I'm just going to take this dummy variable c, which we're integrating over from 0 to infinity, and just call it k. certainly do that. All right, this now looks like the payout of a call. Right. Okay. It's the payout of the call price. Now, I don't want to be integrating. Remember, if I want to actually get the call price, I take the expected value of this. I integrate x over x with respect to its density. Right? This, is, this is g of my payout function of x here. Here, I'm integrating over k. Right, so I'm doing something a bit different. But this is the call option payout. Right, so this holds. It's a linear, linear equation, obviously. And of course, expected expectation is a linear operator. So I'm just going to take, well, I'm going to do two steps. First of all, I'm just going to replace x with my random variable, s sub t. Okay. So that's, I can, that I can do. This also holds. And formally, of course, s sub t is a random variable, so it's a function from the sample space of the real line. But if this holds for every point on the sample space, right? So I can write down this, this equation between random variables. Okay, here's just the integral over dk. Right, so that that holds. Now I'm going to take um, the expectation operator. So take discounted. Expected value. Okay, so of each side. So in other words, what is my operator at each side? It looks like ZTT expected value of given ST. Right? Okay, so well this one is a discounted expected value, that's the price. So this becomes price of the derivative with payout at maturity g. All right, what do we have here? Well, first we've got a constant. All right, so we've got a constant times um, okay, so that's a constant. Okay, now we've got the discounted expected stock price. Okay. A little bit of thought on the terms of the fundamental theorem will show you that the discounted expected stock price under this operator is the current stock price. It's actually non, I have way for not non-trivial, but just think of the stock itself as a derivative, right, with payout S and apply the fundamental theorem. Okay. This has to be the, has to be the case because the replicating portfolio of the stock is just a holding of the stock. Right. Okay. 
plus, and then we just the, take the integral, sorry, the expectation inside the integral. Um, okay, so now I've got discounted expected payout of this, and the discounted expected payout of this is just a call price. With strike K. Okay, so I really like this, this formula. I mean, in some sense, it's, it's a very, nothing too complicated about how to derive it, but it says explicitly now, how do I replicate an arbitrary derivative product with payout G of X, or G of S at maturity? Well, it's clear. I replicate it by G0, zero coupon bonds. Okay, so I have G0 of zero coupon bonds. That's this. I have G prime zero of stock. That's this. And I have this linear combination of calls. Okay. All right. So there is, you know, it's kind of, kind of makes sense, right? You want the zero coupon bond amount is just the intercept of G. The Number of stocks is just the slope of G at zero, and then I have this linear combination of call prices. Okay. And I've just proved that by taking this and taking expected values. Okay. All right, so this is sort of a looking at the uh, duality of call option, uh, option prices and probabilities in different ways, but then also how calls span everything. So the calls, in some sense, are the primitive, the primitive information. Once I know all call option prices, I know the probability distribution exactly. Okay. So there are a couple of um, sort of interesting further questions you might might want to want to pose. We seem to have done everything here with regard to uh, the distribution at time capital T, and that's true. I know all the calls. I know the distribution at time capital T. I know all the calls. I know the price of any option with a payout defined slow, solely by a function at capital T. But I said nothing about the path that takes the stock from today until capital T. So I'm just going to leave you with two, two things to, to think about. Um, actually, it's one thing to think about. <laughs> two people thought about it a lot. Okay, and it's the following, it's the following question, which now will start transitioning into stochastic calculus and stochastic processes a little bit. Okay, so we know. Let's just imagine two times. All right. So suppose we know so we know the set of all call prices with maturity T1, okay, for all K, and the set of all call prices with maturity T2 for all K. Okay. okay, so then we know the distribution, well, there are two distributions. We know the distribution of T1 given ST, and 
But do we know the distribution of the stock at, S, at T2 given T1? Right, more of a general point. Suppose I know this for all T. Let's put T0 here. Okay, I know all option prices of all maturities and all strikes. Okay. Can I determine the stochastic process for ST? I over this time. Is the underlying stochastic process for the stock price fully determined by knowing all call option prices for all strikes and all maturities? Okay. The marginal distributions or the conditional distributions for all maturities are determined because we know that here. Okay. Well, you probably see this is a rephrasing of sort of a finite dimensional problem from, from probability. The answer is no. And the reason to think about is, if I know all the, I mean, my, my intuition for this is if I know all the distributions that, yeah, think about just a denser and denser grid of times that I know the distribution, we're getting closer and closer. I can still allow the stock to flip instantaneously quickly. Imagine they're all essentially symmetric distributions and they're all roughly the same, expanding out. I can imagine the, the stock flipping discontinuously Right, over an arbitrarily small time interval. So without a constraint on the continuity of this process or mathematical constraints on this process, you can't determine the actual process for the stock, even given all the option prices, call option prices. Kind of a, okay, so there are two, um, so to be my Emmanuel Derman, who was at Goldman Sachs, now at Columbia, and Bruno Dupier, who's I think still at uh, Bloomberg, this is, this is the early 90s. Basically, you determine the conditions that you need. And the basic conditions are this, just the stock has to be a diffusion process. If it is a diffusion process, I, as a brand, the random term is a Brownian motion, then it is actually fully determined. Okay, and there's a really nice, elegant, elegant result. So this, this is what gets mathematically quite nice and, and a little tricky. Um, but there's a practical um, implication of this as well, which is... In practice, I will know a finite subset of call options. Those prices will be available to me in the market. Okay, so they will be given. Okay, so one thing I know for sure is that even with a very densely set of call option prices, there will be some other derivative prices whose price is not exactly determined by that set of calls. Because in particular, I know that the set of calls does not determine the underlying stochastic process, even if I knew all of them. Right, so that's a very important thing for traders to understand, is that even if I know a lot of market information, some gives me, here are the prices of a number of, a large number of European options, European call options that I can trade. There may be a, a complex or a non-standard derivative product whose price is not determined uniquely, simply by knowing those options. And that is a, one of the challenges for some of the, the quant groups. So anyway, with that, that is all I wanted to 
convey. I'm happy to take some questions and uh, uh, thank you for um, thank you for your time and for having me. Appreciate it. just wondering, so you said uh, the call, or set of all calls basically spans space of all possible uh, payouts, right? Yes. So I was just wondering maybe if we could change and select some other such spaces for, for, for spanning it. You know, instead of call, maybe some other kind of basic payoff that could still span the same thing and maybe it's more easily tradable or something? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, I mean, there must be, be many if I can, uh, I mean, but this, given that this is the, the simplest expansion of a, the function g, an arbitrary function g, and the second term comes in with this call payout, right, gives us this elegance, right? Now, of course, if I know all the digitals, I know the cumulative distribution function, and therefore I know the density. So, I mean, the digitals do the same, and in fact, you know, arrow de Bruyne securities, which is sort of building blocks, which is uh, something that pays off one in a particular state, sample state, right. also are building blocks. So, right. so we, we are, right. yeah, I mean, in some sense, it could be you can think about an arbitrary basis that will span an arbitrary basis of, uh, of functions that will span any continuous function. I mean, in some sense, you could do it in any any polynomial expansion. If I have a price of any of those payouts, then I've got my, my spanning set, right? right. But th this is the most elegant one. Last question. Sort of use call option to replicate the stock itself. Um, you can use a call option to replicate a stock. Yeah, is it like because and as long as you have zero coupon, as you can see from here, I can just re reorganize anything here to zero coupon bond stock and a set of calls will span anything. Okay. with maturity t. What it's sort of saying is, if I have this strange process with jumps right, and flips and discontinuities, then the market is incomplete, I guess is what, what this is saying. Okay, right. yeah. Oh, so right. in this case, it's due to like, incompleteness. Yeah, I mean, in the sense of most finance, in fact, all continuous time finance will assume there's some diffusion process for, some process for the stock, which has some motion there's some function here and some function for the drift term right in that case then all the core prices do determine right but if you think there's some exogenous flipping parameter right that, that's my intuition for it so there's some that's why this is incomplete so this will not determine so in particular I could know all these core prices then I could determine a particular derivative product it could be the number of times that in an arbitrarily small interval the stock is you know, flips this many times I mean there's some you can create whatever you like for a derivative then it would be incomplete with these calls yeah Mutual density. Yeah. So in this case, it was not that risk neutral density is a, a particular instance of that, not rather it's not uniquely determined, right? No, the risk neutral density is uniquely determined. The stochastic process for SD overall time is not stochastic is not uniquely determined. So this is uniquely determined. Oops. By by call option prices. That is uniquely determined. But knowing the conditional distribution of S capital T given S little t doesn't determine the process of 
the stock price to get there. I can think of infinitely many processes of the stock price that would give rise to this distribution. Okay. That's what's not determined. It's the, ter the terminal distribution is, is, is uniquely determined by the call option prices, nothing else. So in this case, if we take real world data, so we'll get a particular risk insurance density for each particular stock? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.